If you'll open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah, uh, we're, we're almost at the finish line. In fact, uh, you turn ahead a few pages. Well, I already turned into Matthew. Malachi is next, and he's the last of the twelve. And uh, we'll be wrapping up our overview of the minor prophets. Remember I said I was going to come back, and I will, uh, after, this, uh, after Malachi. I'm going to come back to look at the prophecies regarding the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to study those in particular. I'll be doing the second coming first. The reason for that is I want to do the first coming right before Christmas. But we're going to go back and look at the specific prophecies that have to do with the return of Jesus Christ. Now, you remember that I told you I was going to do one book per sermon, except maybe for Zechariah. Zechariah is one of those books that you could just never do in one sermon, no matter how hard you tried. Because, there, first of all, there's 14 chapters. Some of the other prophecies are long also. But Zechariah is immersed so much in the second coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, the last half of the book is totally absorbed, basically, with the return of Messiah for the Jewish people at the end of the age. And there's so much there that, that we're going to have to come back and visit that. But I am going to do Zechariah in one message this morning. We're going to do the flyover at 40,000 feet, and we're going to take a few uh, spy photos as we zip along and, and drop in and, and look at some things. But before we do that, I want to give you a reminder of the times where Zechariah is prophesying. For those of you that missed last week and didn't hear about Haggai, we have gone through the period of God's judgment. The northern kingdom has disappeared to the Assyrians. The southern kingdom has been carried captive to Babylon. And they're in exile. And that's exactly what God said was going to happen if they didn't get their act together. And they never did. And they continued to go their own way. And judgment finally came in 586. Um, the Babylonians came in and ransacked Jerusalem, tore down the temple, and they went off to Babylon and now we are in the period of time when they are returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and recover the city. And so we fast forward um, to like the 520s, 516, whatever, as we're moving toward the end of that Old Testament period. This is the time of restoration as the remnant has returned to Jerusalem. Haggai Zechariah and Malachi are all post-exilic prophets. And by that we mean post-after the exile. They're post-exilic prophets. And they're bringing God's word to a people after this time of judgment. Now, I told you last week that God had thoroughly dealt with his people. And truly, really and truly, at least in outward forms of building shrines and temples and places of sacrifice to other gods, the Jewish people were never idolatrous again. They, the Babylonian captivity cured that. They really did get the message not to go after other gods. That doesn't mean they didn't have heart problems, and they didn't have issues in pursuing God with all their heart. We all struggle with idolatry. We just don't bow down to gods of wood and stone, usually when we're doing it. But... The Jewish people never did go back to that other sort of thing. 
And so Haggai and Zechariah were raised up by God. They were actually contemporaries, although not exactly the same age, but they were contemporaries. And they were raised up by God in the time when the Jewish people had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And as we learned last week in Haggai, they had gotten bogged down. Now, you remember that God said that the period of exile and captivity would last 70 years. And sometimes people get confused over how to reconcile those dates. And I want to give you a little bit of insight into that because... um, from the, from the date that the exiles were carried off to Babylon until the date that some of them under Cyrus returned was only about 50 years. And so some of the ones that actually were carried into Babylonian captivity, some of them lived long enough to come back. Because if you were 10, 15, 20 years old, When Jerusalem was overrun and the temple was torn down, you would only be in your 60s or 70s when Cyrus said you can go back and rebuild the house of God. But the actual period of time from the time the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. until the time that it was dedicated, rebuilt in 516 B.C., was exactly 70 years. And that's exactly the period of time that God said the temple being the symbol of His presence and being the focus of the nation of Israel in their worship, that 70 years from the time the temple was destroyed until the time the temple was rebuilt and dedicated in 516 B.C. Now, the returning exiles had been sent back by Cyrus. Some of them had kind of trickled in, and and, uh, the ones that God had raised up and inspired had gone back. And we learned again from Haggai that it had been about 16 years from the time that they started until this period of time. And as we open the book on Zechariah and begin to listen to his prophecies, Ezra tells us that he stood sort of alongside of Haggai, but they were two very different men. And one of the things I want us to see this morning as we consider these two prophecies is how God uses different methodologies to accomplish the same goal. Haggai, most biblical scholars believe, was living in Jerusalem at the time of its destruction, went into exile, and came back. And if you do the math, let's say he was 10 years old, because that's easier for me to do 10s up here uh, without a calculator. Let's say he was 10 years old when he went into exile. 50 years in exile, that made him 60. Came back under Cyrus at the age of 60. 16 years before he started prophesying, that makes him 76. Haggai is an older guy. Zechariah, on the other hand, was a young man who was born during the Babylonian captivity. He was in the priestly Levitical line, uh, along with um, his father Berechiah and his grandfather Ido, who was the chief spiritual leader during the exile, apparently, from what Ezra says. 
And so Zechariah grew up in the exile, came back with the returnees to Jerusalem. He was probably 20 to 30 in age. So, so here you have this, this older guy and this young fellow standing side by side, preaching to the people to get back to the task of rebuilding the temple. And their messages are very different. You remember Haggai basically said, repent, repent, repent. I mean, Haggai just kind of hit him with, you've got your focus wrong, you've lost sight of your goals, you're spending time on yourselves, you've gotten bogged down, you need to go back to God, put Him first, get Him in first place, you've got to get your lives straight. Haggai was hammering on the fact that they had grown lukewarm in their commitment to God. Zechariah, on the other hand, after his opening sermon, which coincided with Haggai's third message, so those are kind of together, Zechariah, after that opening sermon, you need to get your act together, we find that the next messages he brings are eight visions that he has, and the essence of those visions is encouragement Blessing, encouragement, blessing, hope. God is with you. The one guy saying repent, the other guy saying God is going to bless you when you do. God is going to be with you. God is going to encourage you. And I want to lift my first application out of the two messages of these guys at the outset. Because remember, they are both preaching by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The same God that is saying through Haggai, get your act together, is saying through Zechariah, and I will bless you. And I want us to recognize that God in his conviction always comes that way. There's a way that you can tell whether what's going on inside of you is the accusations of the devil or the true conviction of the Holy Spirit. And one of the easiest ways to tell that is the devil, whose job description, by the way, is to accuse the brothers and the sisters. That's what the Scripture says. He is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us night and day to ourselves, to each other, to God. I mean, he's always running us down, bad-mouthing us. And if you have these kind of tracks going on in your mind... You can't expect anything from God. You don't deserve anything from God. You shouldn't be serving God. You're such a loser. You have all this kind of stuff constantly going on in your mind. When the devil is accusing you, he kind of leaves you hopeless. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no encouragement. There's no uh, sense of, come back to me and I will bless you. The devil just says, you're bad, bad, bad. But God always, with his message of repentance and conviction, God brings hope. God says, when you repent, I will do this. And God puts his finger on the problem, and he brings the conviction with the promise that when you're obedient, I am going to meet you and I'm going to to bless you and you're going to experience my love and, and closeness and intimacy again. God is all about bringing us back to Him. So when He brings conviction, it always has the window of hope. And here are these two guys, double edge of the same sword. 
And one of them is saying, you need to get right with God, you need to turn to God, you need to repent. And the other one is saying, and God will bless you, and God will give you hope, and God will give you a future, and God will meet you. And I love how God puts these two guys together at the same time and place during the reconstruction of the temple to bring that double-edged message. I want you to get your focus straight because I'm about to do great things and I really want you to be a part of it. It's a real encouragement from the Lord. This guy, Zechariah, is kind of an interesting fellow. When, when we start to, to learn about him, I already mentioned that he was a descendant from the Levitical and priestly line through his father, Berechiah, and his grandfather, Edo. He began his prophecies in the fall of 520, along with Haggai. I remember he prophesied from August to December of 520 B.C., and Zechariah joined him probably about October, November. So right about kind of where we are, uh, except it was um, 2,500 years ago. <laughs> Zechariah started preaching. And uh, he preached the first eight chapters of his book in 25 months. We know that because he very clearly tells us when he did it. It's like Haggai, he dates it according to the, the reign of the kings. And he tells us very clearly when he was doing it. And we can just do the math and understand that over a two-year and one-month period... Zechariah preached the messages and visions from chapter 1 to chapter 8. But at chapter 8, there is a huge shift in the whole focus of the book. And the last half of the book, he probably preached 30 or 40 years later. In fact, probably this last section of the book was delivered as he was an older man, and the Greek Empire was beginning to rise as Babylon was weakening and the Greek Empire was rising. And the whole place was in turmoil and political unrest. The last chapters of Zechariah's prophecy were to encourage the people that they were going to be okay, that God was on the throne, that He was going to bless them and use them, and part of that was predictive of the ultimate future when all of their enemies had been dealt with. It's very interesting that uh, not long after that period of time, as Alexander the Great was on his conquering spree, moving back and forth through this area, that he marched with his armies past Jerusalem probably three times, according to historians, and never once touched the city of Jerusalem. Just bypassed it, almost like it wasn't even there. Jerusalem was left in safety, even in the rise and the development of the Greek Empire, and then ultimately in the development of the Roman Empire. And that's part of Zechariah's visions that we see in the night here. The other interesting thing is about Zechariah is that he was apparently the last recorded martyr of the Old Testament era. You remember who the first martyr was for his faith? It was Abel, who was killed by his brother, the sons of Adam and Eve, because Abel had offered a righteous sacrifice and his brother was jealous and rose up and killed him. 
And Jesus in the Gospels refers, bracketing the entire Old Testament period, he refers to the blood of righteous Abel and the blood of Zechariah where he was slain on the steps of the altar. Now it's interesting that there are two Zacharias in the Old Testament and one of them was killed by King Joash long before this period of time between the altar and the temple. In 2 Chronicles 24, 20 to 22, I've given you that reference so you can look that up. Uh, this Zechariah's predecessor was killed in a similar manner. But according to Jesus and some of the extra biblical sources, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, Zechariah the son of Berechiah, making it clear we're talking about this guy, was also killed, story has it, by an angry mob between the, the, the place of sacrifice, the, the altar of sacrifice outside the temple and the temple steps. And he died for his faith and his commitment to God. And he is apparently, and, and it was the hardness of the hearts of the Jewish people that resulted in his death. And Jesus uses these two fellows to bracket that whole Old Testament era and says, you know, you, you guys have kind of rejected me from the get-go. And, and here's the, the, the scheme of things. What about the book of Zechariah? What are the prophecies about? Now, I want to tell you this morning, like Haggai, um, I try to prepare an outline that logically develops the book and it explains it and then uses the application for our times. And and I find that although that works well in the outline, as uh, some of my colleagues say, it doesn't preach well. And uh, I'm going to end up weaving the applications of Roman numeral 3 into the exposition of Roman numeral 2 And you'll recognize that as we go along. So when it comes to the quitting time, and I'm only on 2D, don't panic, I'm really going to be about done. I'm just kidding about that. But but I want you to recognize that the application is kind of woven in here in a way that is is hard to separate. The book of Zechariah breaks down into three sections rather cleanly. The first part of the book chapters 1 to 6, deal with this opening message of repentance, followed by eight visions that Zechariah has that are basically words of encouragement in one way or another to the people of this time as they're rebuilding the temple. And Zechariah wants to, to encourage them, and God gave him visions in the night, so to speak, to, to relate to them, all of which had to do with he was going to deal with the sin that was remaining, he was going to bless the king, he was going to bless the temple, he was going to bless their efforts. And we find as we go through these visions that um, Zechariah was basically uh, <clears throat> bringing a message of hope from God. And then there are these interesting chapters in the middle, chapters 7 and 8, where the people ask a curious question. They come to Zechariah and they say, what about fasting? And I'm going to deal with that in just a second, but that's just kind of an interesting question that they ask. 
And Zechariah, from the Lord, takes two chapters to respond to that question. And then, when we come to chapter 9, this is the great uh, division in the book where we get over to the section where he talks about primarily the second coming of Christ, and it's like 30 or 40 years later. Now, a little bit of uh, what they call Old Testament introduction and some apologetics here, and by apologetics I don't mean apologizing and saying I'm sorry. Apologetics is a defense of the faith. And some um, biblical commentators, I've decided I'm not going to call them scholars anymore, but some biblical commentators come to Zechariah and they say, well, the, the last chapters from 9 on were written by some other guy. Uh, because for one thing, they're way too specific. They even mentioned the Greeks, and who knew the Greeks were going to do anything when the first Zechariah started out. So they actually talk about Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 2, just like they uh, can't believe that Isaiah would have known about Cyrus 150 years before he was born, and so they have Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 2, and some of them even have Isaiah 3. And, and if you're a scholarly theologian, you call those Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah, and Trito-Isaiah. You know, every specialty has its language, and there you have it. And so they divide all these things up, and it's on the premise that how could these guys know the future? I mean, how could this happen? You know... I was thinking about that this morning as I was meditating in my office, and I thought, why would you go to college and seminary and graduate school and get a Ph.D. in biblical studies, Old Testament and New Testament, and spend your whole life in religion if you didn't believe that God could do anything? Does that make sense to anybody? You know, it just dawned on me, why would you spend your whole life involved in religious studies... When you don't believe, God knows anything or can even talk about it. And the whole concept is that, well, Zechariah couldn't have written the last half of the book because it's too specific about things in the future. Well, guess what? One of the proofs that this Bible that we cherish is the Word of God is that God pre-writes history. He does tell His prophets what He's going to do. We're going to be studying that November and December. We're going to look at specific prophecies that God fulfilled literally in the future because the Bible is the only religious book that presumes to pre-write history in specific details that you can check it out. And it's almost like God is saying, you know, believe me, I wrote it down for you. I wrote it before it comes to pass. I wrote it ahead of time. Take a look at it. And you will see that I know the end from the beginning. I am the God who's really running this universe. And I can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. And the last half of the book of Zechariah is all about that future stuff. And there's no reason. There's there's no reason whatsoever to believe it was by a different author. It was by an older man who had a different set of messages to bring in a different time to encourage the people that they really had a future. And and furthermore, that one day they would be the envy of all the nations 
as their Messiah dwelt with them, God among his people in their midst, in what we know to be the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me in uh, chapter 1 of Zechariah, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to look at this first message for a moment and, and catch that. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, this is Zechariah 1.1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways, your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now, I want to go back to what I said about these two guys, Haggai and Zechariah, being different in their temperament. And and, and by the way, part of my point in bringing this out is to understand that God uses different people in different ways. You know, God uses diversity to bring about His intended purposes. And I love that. He picks people with different personalities, different temperaments, different, uh, different focus, He lays things on their hearts that are consistent with their personality and temperament, and then He puts it all together for us in such a way that that we get the whole picture. And I think that's... We need to understand that. We need to understand that today. That God has different ways of going about getting across the same message. It's it's like that two-edged sword. Because you remember what Haggai said about the old people who were there when they laid the foundation of the temple. They said, this is nothing like it used to be. They were so upset and so frustrated that Ezra says the sound of their weeping was about as sound as the other's joy, and they couldn't even tell the difference. The commotion was so great, but the old people were saying, oh, this isn't anything like it used to be. I remember those glory days. And Haggai said, forget the glory days. That's history. Forget that. Don't look back. You can't go through life looking in the rearview mirror all the time. You need to keep your eyes on the road. You need to focus. And so, I don't want you spending time thinking about these guys and the way it used to be. Zechariah comes at it a little bit differently. And he says, remember your fathers and how they never did what they were supposed to do. And they were always turning away from God. And don't be like them. Friends, there's a great message there for us this morning. I quoted Philippians 3 toward the end of the sermon last week, and I take you back to that where Paul says, This thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and looking forward to what is ahead, I press toward the goal of the upward call of God, In Christ Jesus. We need to get this lesson. You cannot live on your laurels. You cannot rest on the past. You cannot live life looking backwards. And if you've messed up, 
in the past, the most glorifying thing to God that you can do with it is to put it under the blood and forget it and move on. Haggai said, don't go back to the glory days because the greater future and God's greater work is still ahead. And friends, if you don't believe that, just wait till Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. Man, we ain't seen nothing yet. Wow, what a future the church has. What a glorious thing in the future is coming. But there is value in learning from the past, not dwelling there, not crying in your beer over the failures of yesterday, but there's, there's value in learning from the past. Remember the first job that I ever really had, I, I was working for a fellow. I got the job because he knew my dad and he hired me. And I think I was 14 years old or 15 and, and he hired me and I started work and I made a mistake one day. <clears throat> And that's going to happen. You're always going to make mistakes, you know. And so he, he just kind of looked at it and he said, he said, Paul to err is human. And I got by that one. But he said to do the same thing twice is stupid. Got it. <laughs> I got that message too. He was telling me it's okay to make a mistake, but don't make it again. And that's exactly what Zachariah is saying here. Don't. Make it again. Look at what your fathers did and learn from them. You don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. You, you need to be able to take the message and benefit from it. And we need to learn that in our lives, as the Apostle Paul put it in New Testament epistle terms. We need to forget what is behind. Whether it was good, whether it was bad. Put it away. It's history. Learn the lessons from the past. Remember the blessings of God in times when He met you, but today is now and the future lies ahead of us and we need to live our lives anticipating what is to come. God wants to take us forward, not backward. And Zechariah's word to them was, don't be like your fathers. Don't be a stubborn hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. And following that, and as I said, I can't possibly go into all of these this morning, but I've highlighted them for you. You can read them. In fact, one of the questions I ask you in your study guide, if, if you do these on your own or in your group, what is your favorite vision from Zechariah 1 to 6 and why? I have a favorite vision. At top of one of them, I wrote, great chapter. I'm not going to prejudice you by telling you mine. I have to be in my small group to learn that probably, but um, if I if I even tell them. But anyway, uh, look at the look at the visions. Read those visions and say which one because when when you take them in the bite sized pieces, they're not really all that difficult to understand. The next section that we come to is chapter seven and eight, and there's a powerful lesson here. And I'd like you to turn with me to chapter seven. I want to read these first um, seven verses for us. Zechariah 7, verse 1. Then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the month of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent a Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. 
speaking to the priest who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophet, saying, in other words, Bethel sends these guys uh, and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. They apparently come to the area of the temple, and Zechariah is there. And here's their question. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priest, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? Now here's their question. They put it in a way that's a little odd to us. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain? It's like, what, you mark on your calendar? Time to cry now. It's time to have a good cry. How many of you mark that, those dates in your calendar? I'm going to have a good cry today. And, and you plan that out. So in the fifth month, it's time to cry. No. The, the issue was that during the years of captivity, they had set aside times for fasting and mourning and weeping over their exiled predicament. And they oriented times of, of the, all the people seeking God with fasting and weeping during this period of time. And they made a big deal over it. I mean, like Jesus pointed out, you know, to the Pharisees and the ones that says, you know, they pray on the street corners so that everybody will think well of their piety. And, and he says, when you fast, don't be like those hypocrites, those religious leaders, putting ashes all over yourself and wearing tattered clothing and making a big show of, I'm fasting now. He says, you, you have your exercise of those kinds of things in secret with God, and the God who sees in secret will meet you. I mean, these people in these periods of time, they would put ashes on themselves and they would weep. They would literally weep and cry and mourn. And, and what they were asking Zechariah was, is things are not going so well here. I mean, we're trying to rebuild this temple and we're having to, our neighbors don't like it. The Samaritans keep trying to shut us down. There's all this political turmoil all around us. We've got all these problems all the time. What about this fasting business? Should we, should we continue having these fasts? I mean, they were fasting and weeping and praying over being absent from Jerusalem. Now they're in the middle of Jerusalem. And it still isn't good. You know, they still got trouble. And they say to Zechariah, should we do this? And I want you to notice the question that God asked them in verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and to all the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? I think... If you mark in your Bibles, this is a verse to mark, by the way. I think this is one of the most profound questions in all the Bible. It goes to the heart of why we do the things we do. It gets right down and cuts to the chase and says, in essence, how come you're being religious? Why do you fast? Are you fasting because you're grieved over your relationship with me? Are you fasting 
because you have recognized your sin and you long to recover the intimacy of a walk with your God. Do you read your Bible because you love His Word? Do you pray because you long to be in communion with Him? Or do you do these things in hopes that you can twist His arm into giving you what you want? Was it actually for me? Or were you just trying to get out of your predicament? Were you just trying to improve your circumstances? I want to ask you this morning, regarding our religious behavior, why do you do it? Why do you do the things you do? I see it all the time. People get into trouble. Some catastrophe comes into their life. What happens? They start reading their Bible. Start praying more. Start coming to church more. Why? What's the purpose? I'm in trouble. I need God. And maybe if I do more stuff, I can get Him on my team. Maybe I can persuade Him to help me out. There's an ulterior motive going on here. And God comes back to the people with this question and He says, What's your motive? Then the word of the Lord, verse 8 came to Zechariah saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And this is speaking of the fathers, but they refused to pay attention, turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing, made their hearts like flint, so they could not hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts. And guess what? They went into exile. And God is coming back to this. He's saying, He's saying, Am I more concerned about you fasting, or am I more concerned about you treating one another fairly? Am I more interested in your religious outward behavior, or am I interested in you taking care of widows and orphans, strangers and poor? Am I more interested in your religious observances, or in a heart that comes forth in obedience, motivated by your love for me, so that you do the things that I've asked you to do? Jesus put it this way in the New Testament, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. God is saying here, if you've got the right attitude and the right heart, obedience is better than sacrifice. I'm not hung up on fasting, but I am hung up on godliness. And I want you people to get it together And seek me with all of your heart and show it in your actions. I mentioned last week also Revelation chapter 3 of the church at Laodicea where Jesus says through John, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If any man would hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and fellowship with him. We'll sit down and have a meal together. Through the years, that verse has been quoted in more invitations to invite people to come to Christ. And you've heard the preacher say it. Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. If you just open, let him in. He'll come in and save you. That's all true, but that's the wrong verse. That verse has nothing to do with coming to Christ. That was spoken to a church that was hung up on formalism and religion and outward signs of worship. The Laodicean church thought they had it together, man. They had Starbucks in the lobby. They had all kinds of, of, of good things going on in their church. They were rich. Read it. They were rich. They had programs. They had everything going on. And Jesus says, you make me sick. I'm, I'm just ready to throw you up. That's pretty graphic. But if you look at the... How many of you have sulfur in your water? At home, you have well water with sulfur. Anybody have sulfur in their well water? Come on, somebody's got to have that. We have it here. And every once in a while, the hot water is like, man, that stinks. That's coming out of there and it just stinks. It's that, ah. And those springs that Laodicea was noted for, you know, there were hot springs and whatever, but if they were lukewarm, the, the, the minerals in that water were just nauseating. And Jesus, in essence, was saying to the church at Laodicea, I wish you were cold or hot. I can handle you cold and I can handle you hot. But this lukewarm business, this half-hearted stuff, this outward show of religion with no spirit in it, I can't stand it. I'm about to throw up. And it's hard for us to recognize that God would actually rather us be cold than lukewarm. In other words, if you're not passionate, get out of the boat. Don't hang around playing church. You keep playing church, and and you think you are it, and you ain't. And I can't get through to you, because you think you got it. I wish you'd get out, go back out in the world, live like the devil. At least we know whose side we're on. I can deal with you there. But this lukewarm business, I can't cope with. I want you on fire for me, or I want you to get out of the boat. I don't want any of this middle ground stuff. And Zechariah is making that plain. Chapter 7 and 8. Read them. If you haven't already done so, read them when you get on. That's what it's all about. And he's basically saying, I don't care whether you fast or not, if there's no heart and passion in your love for me, I don't care if you fast or not, if the only thing you're trying to do is twist my arm and get me to answer some prayer for you. Oh, Lord, we're having such a hard time here. and All the nations around us are threatening us. The Samaritans are making it hard. and We're back to building the temple, but now our houses are suffering and we're just having such a tough time here. If I fast, will you make everything better for me? And God says, no. No. I want you to come to me with all of your heart, and I want your behavior to show your passion for me. And I will be with you. We read the promises of God sometimes, and we forget they were made to people that were sold out. 
They weren't made to people who just want to grab a promise here and there, put a few in your, you know, go buy yourself one of these recipe boxes and throw a few promises in there and read one a day and grab it out. Oh, I'll take this promise today. I kind of like it. The promises of God were made to people who were on fire for God, that are serious about him. And Zechariah is making that abundantly clear, and I, and I want us to get this, man. This, this is the message of the morning. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you come to church? Why do you fast if you fast? Why do you go to Bible study? What's your motive? Are you... Just trying to get God on your side, so kind of like Santa Claus, he's checking his list, see if you've been naughty or nice, and if you've done enough good stuff, you know, he'll give you what you want for Christmas. Or do you have a passionate heart for God that no matter what comes into your life, you love him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, and it comes out of you by the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit, it comes out of you in godliness because you're in love with him, And now you and God are tight and you're walking through life together. And you know, there may be tough times, there may be good times, but that doesn't change your passion for Jesus Christ. That's what Zechariah is getting at. And that's a big question. And we need to take away from this morning the question, why am I religious? And I'm using that in the best sense of the word. Why do I have spiritual disciplines? Why do I do the things I do? What motivates you? Is it love for God? Or are you just trying to twist his arm? The last section of the book of Zechariah, beginning in chapter 9, focuses on the return of Jesus Christ. And friends, if you want to talk about pie in the sky, and so many people say of us, we have our head in the clouds, you know, we're not facing reality, or he's talking about pie in the sky, whatever. If you want to talk about pie in the sky, it's in Zechariah 9 through 14. And it's when Jesus comes back and fixes this sorry planet. It's when he puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's when he sets up his reign from Jerusalem. It's when the church, in all of its raptured glory with its King and Lord and Messiah and the Jews and their Messiah come together and he begins that glorious reign. You know, we need to remind ourselves in tough times. It's not about me. It's not about me. History is going somewhere. History has a purpose. The people who are most richly blessed in their lives are the one who get with God in the program of His objectives. Isn't that what the Lord's Prayer is all about? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that what we're praying? And that's what God is after. People who will get with the program. It's not about me, whether or not I get my next car, or whether or not this whatever gets fixed. God cares about those things. I don't want to leave you with the impression that He doesn't, but He is most tender. Can God, can God show that kind of favoritism? 
Yes. He is most tender toward those whose hearts are holy toward him. And he will meet the little things in your life. He'll meet the big things in your life. He'll be with you through the tough times of your life. He'll never leave you. But you will have the greatest intimacy with God when your goals and his goals are aligned. And our hope is in the future. We have a present God in a present moment. But we're going somewhere, friends. And after Jesus has proved what it should have been like for a thousand years on this earth, then he'll wipe the blackboard clean and bring a new heaven and a new earth where evil will be ultimately and completely banished forever. And we who know him will be together for all of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. And as James put it, puts it, a couple of hundred million years beats a wisp of smoke any day. To be with Jesus forever makes this brief time all worth it. Father, I pray this morning that you would tune our hearts to seek you for the right reasons with all of our being. That you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith that we would examine our own hearts as to why we are the way we are and that we would love you first and foremost from the depths of our being and out of that love would flow everything else we do. Reading our Bibles because it's your word to us. Praying because it's our fellowship with you. Attending worship because we get to be with the saints and hear the word of God expounded and sing the songs of Zion. Fasting because we can put everything else aside and just focus on you for a while. Oh, that we would do what we do. Because we love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.